So, greetings, comrades. Navalny's dead, as you probably know, if you're listening to the show. But uh, what exactly happened and what's going on? Well, for starters, I should probably give a bit of a prolonged explanation on who Navalny even was, because, you know, he's gone at this point. The official version being um, a, a kind of a blockage in, in the, the arteries. No one believes that, but, you know, it is what it is. But uh, let's get... Let's get through all of this from the start, because I want to I give you some short biography first, because I don't think I've ever done that on the show, and then we'll get to the, to the death part. Navalny's father was a Soviet army officer, mother an economist. Navalny grew up in garrison towns in Moscow area, but he spent summers with his paternal grandmother in the countryside near Chernobyl. And uh, in April 1986, his relatives were evacuated from the area, but uh, not before they had observed the cover-up from, you know, from disaster by the Soviet government. Local residents were forced to plant potatoes in the soil as part of an effort by Soviet authorities to minimize the danger from radiation exposure. This influenced Navalny as he attended the People's Friendship University of Russia in Moscow, and he graduated with a law degree in 1998. He remained in Moscow to practice law and to continue his studies, and in 2001, he earned an economics degree from the Financial, uh, financial University under the government of the Russian Federation. In 2000, while he was still a student, Navalny joined Jabloko, a political party that promoted liberal democracy and market economy. In the early days of Putin's reign, it seemed that opposition groups might hold some sway in the state Duma, but the unification of pro-Putin parties, well, obviously under the banner of United Russia, would stifle all the dissent. Navalny rose to the position of a local leadership in Yabloko, but he was expelled from the party in 2007. Representatives from Yabloko claimed that Navalny had damaged the party with nationalistic activities, including an attendance of a far-right march, but Navalny asserted that he had been driven out over personality clashes with party leader Grigory Yevdinsky. This far-right march was basically Navalny's attempt to also gain kind of these uh, Girkin's bodies on his side. You know, these nationalistic elements on the Russian, Russian part. This is why he's not a, uh, and never was, kind of a single, you know, a single opinion person. Because today, for example, Maxim Kalashnikov, a friend of Igor Girkin, stated that, you know, he would have found a place for Navalny in some sort of corruption investigation bureau and the new system that these Gorgirkin buddies were to build up to. In 2008, Navalny began a stakeholder activism campaign that targeted publicly traded state-owned entities. By purchasing a small amount of stock in each company, Navalny gained entree into shareholder meetings. Over there, he grilled corporate officers about inconsistencies in financial reporting and a lack of transparency in management and bookkeeping. As many of these executives were close political allies of Putin, these encounters provided an effective means of expressing dissent in, well, the society where any and all political dialogue and any dissent at all was becoming increasingly restricted. Navalny documented his efforts in a blog that became so popular that Russian President Medvedev, who took part, uh, who took part in office as, you know, just, uh, just to be the doorstop for Putin, 
was forced to acknowledge the scale of corruption. Acknowledge, uh, according to Medvedev himself, a trillion rubles, about $31 billion, was being embezzled annually from the state procurement system. In December 2010, Navalny launched the whistleblowing website Rospil, a Russian abbreviation for Russian saw, saw being a slang for the embezzlement, as in to saw off a piece of a contract. The site publicized cases in which state contracts appear to have been awarded corruptly. Navalny invited visitors to anonymously post details of suspicious government deals and discuss the allegations online. Within six months, the site was reportedly getting one million visits a month. When Navalny went on to coin the term Party of Crooks and Thieves to describe Putin's United Russia Party, it quickly became the catchphrase of Russian protests. At the same time, Navalny never really protested against the invasion of Georgia. And, uh, you know, when asked about Crimea, he said that Crimea is not a sandwich to be, you know, just given away that easily. So he was quite a nationalistic person, but he'd be spoken with. But let's get on to this stuff. Widespread irregularities in the Russian parliamentary elections in December 12, 2011 triggered the largest popular demonstrations since the fall of the Soviet Union. Navalny had uh, exhorted his followers to support any party other than United Russia, and in spite of ample evidence of vote rigging, Putin's party won less than half the vote. Navalny was jailed for 15 days for participating in an unsanctioned protest. It was, well, pff, obviously just the first one of his encounters with the Russian prison system. We now know. His rise to prominence did, didn't go unnoticed in Kremlin, and when Putin returned to power in 2012, he, moved, he immediately moved to clamp down on this scent. In June, barely a month after the end of Medvedev Interregnum, Navalny was one of the several opposition figures whose homes were raided by law enforcement authorities, and Navalny was targeted with criminal investigation on suspicion of corruption, and Putin enacted harsh new penalties for individuals who, part who participated in unauthorized rallies. On July 17, 2013, Navalny declared his candidacy in the Moscow mayoral race. The following day, he was found guilty of embezzlement in a trial that was widely regarded as having been politically motivated, and he was sentenced to five years imprisonment. Thousands of protesters promptly filled the streets of Moscow, and the following day, he was unexpectedly freed pending the hearing of his appeal. His release enabled him to pursue his mayoral bid. Navalny ran a, ran a strong Western-style campaign, holding informal meetings with the voters in the streets, promoting himself on the internet, and posting glossy posters of himself with his family. In part, he was forced to canvass in this way because he was refused access to the main television channels, but the result was a legitimately grassroots campaign. On September 8, 2013, the incumbent Putin ally Sergei Subyanin won the election with slightly more than 51.3% of the votes, while well, Navalny finished second with an unexpectedly high 27.2%. Although an appeals court in October of that year upheld Navalny's conviction for embezzlement, in another surprise move, the court suspended his prison sentence, allowing him to walk free, which I think was the first warning for him, which he just ignored. The criminal conviction barred him from running for elected office in the immediate future, but did not prevent him from engaging in other political activities. In this respect, the outcome fit the new policy masterminded by the Putin's aide Vyacheslav Volodin of competition without change. That is, the liberal opposition would be allowed limited access to the political system as long as they accepted the existing rules of the political game. 
Navalny's activism and attempts to participate in the Russian political system would continue, and his incarceration would become a recurring event. In December 2014, Navalny received a three-and-a-half-year suspended sentence on fraud charges. His brother Oleg was imprisoned for three-and-a-half years for the same offense. Navalny's unexpectedly strong performance in 2013 Moscow mayoral election served as an impetus for Putin's implementation of managed democracy, a system whereby the basic structures and procedures of democracy were maintained, but the outcomes of elections were, well, predetermined, obviously. In the November 2016 legislative election, United Russia claimed victory, but election observers again documented numerous irregularities, just as they would be at all times from now on, including instances of ballot stuffing, repeat voting, you know, the usual stuff. The Vietnamese Progress Party was barred from, contest, uh, from contesting the election after the Russian Justice Ministry cancelled its registration. In an effort to stoke his domestic popularity, Putin scheduled the 2018 presidential election on the fourth anniversary of Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea. Election officials had ruled that Navalny could not challenge Putin for the presidency due to his suspended prison sentence. Navalny responded by calling for a boycott of the election. Unsurprisingly, Putin claimed an overwhelming majority of the vote. And of course, well, you know, he cheated his way to victory. But then, then things started to happen. See, in 2020, Navalny was campaigning in Siberia ahead of regional elections that were scheduled for September of that year. On August 20, 2020, he became seriously ill on a flight from Tomsk to Moscow, and tests later confirmed that he had been exposed to Novichok, the nerve agent that was developed by the Soviets, which I'll devote the whole episode to at one point, I think. Fearing for his safety at a Russian hospital, Navalny's family had, uh, had flown him to Berlin, where he remained in a medically induced coma to recover. The following month, opposition candidates performed surprisingly well in local elections held in the area where Navalny had been campaigning. The Kremlin denied involvement in the poisoning, but such protestations had, well, become increasingly implausible, as uh, the attack on Navalny represented only like one in a long series of, you know, they just trying to assassinate Putin's critics. Putin, for his part, refused to say Navalny's name in public. While recovering at German clinic, Navalny worked with Christo Grozev of the investigative journalism group Bellingcat to uncover the specifics of the Novichok attack. Christo Grozev and his team had unmasked several of the FSB agents who were involved in the poisoning, and Navalny called one of the men from whom Grozev had identified. Posing as the aide of a senior Russian security official, Navalny and the agent had a lengthy conversation about the details of the assassination attempt. The agent claimed it would have all gone differently if not for the plane's emergency landing in Omsk and the hasty intervention of emergency medical personnel. <laughs> Obviously, this was a massive embarrassment for Putin and a totally fake, as called by the FSB. On January 17, 2021, despite multiple advices not to do so, Navalny returned to Russia, and he was immediately arrested by security services. Within weeks, he was sentenced to three and a half years in a penal colony. Russian prison officials claimed that Navalny had failed to report to them during his hospitalization in Germany, and this constituted a violation of the terms of his 2014 suspended sentence. Well, while he returned, because he wanted to train a politician, he maybe hoped that things go better. I know he never expected the war, but this is what he get these days. 
this is what we get these days, yeah. While in prison back then, Narni announced the beginning of a hunger strike that lasted three weeks. His followers took to the streets in a wave of protests, and Navalny maintained his robust social media presence from behind bars. With legislative elections scheduled for the fall, Russian authorities took additional steps to restrict Navalny's political reach. In June 2021, a Moscow court ruled that any group tied to Navalny would be labeled an extremist organization, and its members would be barred from seeking office. Just days before the September election, the Russian government forced Apple and Google to remove a smart voting app developed by Navalny's allies from their online stores. Russian officials had threatened to imprison specific local employees of the two companies, and a Navalny aide called the decision a shameful act of political censorship. In March 2022, one month into Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Navalny was found guilty of new charges of fraud and the contempt of court. He was sentenced to nine years in a strict regime penal, penal colony. An email stated Navalny was not allowed to speak in court, so he took to Twitter to reaffirm his mission to bring the truth to the people of Russia. Navalny was sent to the notorious IK-6 maximum security prison in Menyakhovo, roughly 150 miles east of Moscow, where he spent much of his time in solitary confinement. He called upon his followers to demonstrate against Putin's special military operation in Ukraine, but the government response to protests reached draconian levels as the war ground on. Criticism of Russia's performance in the war was criminalized, and, and well, some men arrested, well, by this point, a lot of men arrested, had protests were served with rough papers while in police custody. In December 2023, Navalny's attorneys lost contact with him for nearly three weeks before learning that Russian authorities had relocated him to a penal colony in the Arctic Circle. And now, less than two weeks, less than two months later, he now is, well, dead. The official statement is that, again, uh, his, one of his arteries, you know, had like a blockade and it disrupted the whole system and everything. However, obviously, no one believes that. But the situation over there, well, yeah, we have some information about the IK-3 where Navalny was moved. That was the weirdest pr- weirdest thing ever. That's one of the harshest prisons ever, which I know because I made the prison culture episodes. IK-3. The Polar Wolf prison. That thing. That thing's awful. The facility, by the way, is located in the village of Harp in, Ru- in Russia's Yamalo-Ninets Autonomous Oblast. North of the Arctic Circle. In 2006, Novaya Gazeta wrote that Polar Wolf had always functioned as a prison colony for especially dangerous repeat offenders. Novaya's associate, Ivan Zhdanov, referred to it as a, one, of the fur, one of the further north and most remote prisons in Russia and called it brutal. Brutal even by, even by Russian standards. Lawyers who specialized in defending convicts' rights gave uh, a similar con- description of the prison. And uh, this is from Medusa, quote, as they got the context here. It's a disgusting colony, one lawyer called Medusa. Conditions from prisoners are, for prisoners are very harsh, and all communications from there are blocked, except for perhaps some medical requests and requests for material assistance. The Polar Wolf prison colony is located in the tundra that is effectively in Arctic climate conditions, according to a lawyer who focuses on court cases involving FSIN institutions. 
Conditions there are extremely harsh because of the special regime. This is, this is essentially legalized torture. It is also worth noting that last year, the prosecutor of Yamal Onyenit's autonomous Okrug identified violations of labor protection, fire safety, and sanitary regulations in the Polar Wolf colony. This means the tension conditions there are so poor that even the prosecutor's office decided that it was necessary to intervene, despite the fact that prosecutorial oversight at detention facilities is basically an oversight. It's difficult to give a detailed description of medical resources available to prisoners in this IK-3, but there's every reason to believe that the situation is very extremely bad. A lawyer who works in disputes said that, quote, if memory serves, the last complaint regarding improper medical care was during the COVID-19 pandemic. But there's a reason to believe that things aren't really so good, knowing how healthcare works in relatively prosperous regions. And specialists, especially the ones who work in specialized fields, are unlikely to go to work there. An employee from the Russian Behind Bars Foundation gave an even grimmer description. As a rule, every time you go to them with a request, you're given a pill for diarrhea. Headache, diarrhea pill. Liver pain, diarrhea pill. And while there have been no official reports of torture in the facility, human rights defenders believe it's practiced. Well, because it's practiced everywhere, to be honest. Quote, the entire time I worked at the FSCN system, which was about 10 years, there were no official reports of torture in the Polar Wolf colony. By judging by the accounts of convicts, that torture there is routine, another lawyer said who focused on prisoner rights. She continued, there are no radiators to heat the cells. There are only two pipes through which water flows in and out. If you argue and try to stand up for your rights with one of the, one of the guards, he simply turns the valve and your room temperature drops to 10, de 10, de 10 degrees. That's Celsius or 50 degrees Fahrenheit. You sit in this cold cell wearing your scythetic clothing. When there are temperature inspections, it might go up to 25 degrees. That's 77 degrees Fahrenheit. But as soon as the outsiders leave, the temperature can be turned back down to whatever the officials need it to be. So that's the thing. That's the thing here. In these these circumstances, Navani died. Made some phone made some phone calls, verified some stuff. Medusa's people who also made some stuff. Well, some of that stuff is good, some of that stuff is bad. Uh, I'll, I'll if you read the Medusa article on this, I'll tell you, which is kind of the wrong stuff here. But uh, yeah, some officials in the Kremlin's block, some not all. See Navalny's death as a very negative development for Putin's re-election campaign. At the, same, at the same time, members of the administration do not expect the opposition, opposition demi, politician's demise seriously, to seriously affect the results, but this gives, apparently, according to them, a ton of tools to the West for a propaganda victory, which means that Navalny's death isn't, isn't beneficial to them. See, that's the thing. Even um, when literally everyone believes, then me too, by the way, that they're just one of the versions that Navalny was killed, there are two options here that we need to take a look at. Sources, a lot of sources in the Kremlin state that, uh, state that Navalny wasn't purposefully killed, instead attributing his death to very poor prison conditions. <laughs> like, these, this prison was awful already, so, so, you know. However, you have to remember that it was Putin who put him there. 
I think personally that um, when his death, it wasn't a result of poisoning. It wasn't the result of anything like that. It, result, it was a result of super poor prison conditions. However, who put him into prison? Who sent him to? Who sent him after all these months in uh, solitary confinement to the worst prison in the country? Who did this? It was a slow death, a painful death, but um, a death nonetheless, and a death by the hands of Putin. Even if it wasn't purposefully done with Novichok or some, some other things, it was bound to happen one day or another. The biggest issue for Putin is just that um, it happened before the election. Putin had put Navalny in there for like nine years more. He expected maybe Navalny to last for, I don't know, a couple of more years. Not now. Because right now, well, right now was the worst time for Putin to have this death happen. Although, you know, he's definitely responsible for it. But I don't, do not believe any windows or stuff. No, he, Navalny had been in poor health. It was a poor conditioning issue. Putin was responsible for these conditions, so he's, he's still responsible for murder. But I don't think Putin planned for Navalny to die right now. Because, well, sources in Kremlin and in general, the same guys who talk to Medusa and sometimes to Bellingcat and, uh, well, to you guys as well and... By you guys, uh, I mean, well, people who listen to me in important places. Yeah, this is going to have an extremely negative effect in the West, obviously. I mean, uh, Biden's already blamed it on Putin. And he's correct. I mean, maybe not directly, but Putin placed him in the situation, in the prison where he knew he would die. But the sources that I have noted that this is especially likely because the backdrop of recent attempts to get through via Tucker Carlson, which was the dumbest interview ever, like the stupidest thing ever. Of course, you know, the sources mentioned that the president is going to be called a bloody dictator and a murderer once again. Well, of course, because he's both. Another source that I called personally said that this would complicate any hypothetical peace talks between Russia and Ukraine, as, well, as Western countries might consider it unacceptable to discuss possible terms of Putin in these circumstances. But at the same time, this is going to have less impact on Russia itself than people might think. State propaganda, as uh, some people that I called up said, well, just calm down the rest of these people. <laughs> there have been already instructions. We know this because... Uh, the guy who used to run, who used to run Sputnik, the pro-Russian uh, propaganda media in Lithuania, had given up Latvian media, and he gave gave out some information. And uh, yeah, the state outlets have already been given instructions. Authorities have told them not to mention Navalny's twenty twenty poisoning under any circumstances, and to describe the deceased as an extremist in prison on criminal charges. Russian propagandists will spin Navalny's death by pushing multiple narratives to their audiences simultaneously. 1. Extremist opposition figures suffered a blood clot and his death is being hyped up in the West in order to do damage to Putin and put the blame on him. 2. Navalny's death is not beneficial for us, so it benefits the West. They eliminated their own agent as a sacrificial victim. 3. 
Russian security forces and hawks decided to eliminate Navalny, so there would be no, 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 no negotiations. The thing is, this who benefits situation? Well, the war did not benefit, you know, Russia at all. It was stupid. It was pointless. It was just the dumbest thing ever. It's not about who benefits. It's about what Putin wants. This whole idea of benefits and profits and all that nonsense, that only works for the West. It doesn't work for Putin at all. But I do believe, I truly do believe in this case that this wasn't Novichok or anything like that. It was just health problems hitting Putin at an um, unfortunate time. Because, well, the other option is either either I'm like... Okay, so other option is the fact that, uh, well, this is Putin getting extra paranoid after, after Tucker Carlson, which means that Girkin should die very soon as well. But, you know, we'll see. If Girkin dies in the following, I don't know, month, then it's Putin definitely poisoning, doing something super special to kill Navalny. If Girkin lives for, say, two months, or more even, then it's just random circumstance. But who knows? March elections are going to happen first. It's going to be a weird mess. But Navalny wasn't a uh, simple person by any means. However, he was one hope that uh, those people who really believe that Russia could maybe, you know, keep itself together after Putin, he was the one that they put hopes on. Right now, again, you know, my bet's completely on Russia just collapsing internally. There is literally nothing else that I can see that it could do. And it's not a happy news, by the way. It's quite sad. Because there's going to be a lot of trouble in this decade. But yeah. We'll keep following all of this. We'll take a look at Avdeyevka and why Ukraine had to step back from it. Mostly because of the United States not giving enough aid at this point because of troubles in the Congress, apparently, as they call it. A lot of stuff to talk about in, in, in all, all sorts of matters once I'll get more informed and everything. But, um, yeah. Knowing these death caught me by, by surprise because this was totally not, not what I had expected. But it is what it is. And we'll, of course, manage to move on. If you want to support the show, please consider joining our Discord group. We have links all over the place, and uh, because because we have a lot of things happening there, like live interviews and Q and A's and all this stuff, and we have a uh, coffee, coffee dot com slash Eastern Border. We also have a Patreon. We really really appreciate if you would go to Patreon, Patreon dot com slash Eastern Border and support us support us there. Or you can just go to the Eastern Border.lv and click the donate button there, or just click whatever link ACOS provides you, because I don't know. They provide different things for different countries. But remember, you know, my job is funded by you, by you guys and no one else. The ads, they just pay for some administrative expenses there. I make about I make only about 10% in ads what I should be making because I'm a Latvian, not an American, so they just you know, don't pay as much. So it's all on you guys, and I'm very thankful about that. And I'll keep my work going for as long as I can. But for now, that's the Danyatvarish. And I hope this was informative for you. 
and that you learned something from it. And as always, well, what else? Happiness is mandatory. <laughs>